Aaron Hogan, Rod Babers, Hook Em Up, 1019 AM 1260, The Horn. Fabulous fifth hour here on this Tuesday morning. Ty, uh, Ty has been rolling with the Toby Keith this morning. Woke up to the news that he had passed away overnight. After a battle with stomach cancer at the age of 62, last hour Craig Flowers was with us and told the tale that uh, saw Toby in November and kind of realized as he left that uh, probably might, might be the last time he would see him based on the way he looked and his health and cancer. Cancer's a bitch here, Mark Craven, I can tell you that. Yes, sir. Mike Craven is hanging with us. He is the senior writer at Dave Campbell's Texas Football, also my co-host on the Eyes on Texas podcast. We're going to be recording a new episode of the EOT this week. And we'll be talking a lot, Mike, about uh, National Signing Day, even though there may not be a lot to talk about. But, um, you know, Steve Sarkeesian has a 10-15 availability tomorrow, which uh, will be happening right during this show in the 10 o'clock hour, uh, to talk about the entire signing class and kind of double back on some things. They, they're not expected to sign anybody tomorrow, uh, but they obviously have 18 players already on campus, the early enrollees to go with the portal editions, eight of them. So you're talking about uh, 20 – Four new players or 26 new players already on campus for Texas right now um, from last year that are either portal additions or uh, high school players who are already here. That means five of the 20. So five are still left to join. And we'll hear Sark talking about that tomorrow. And you're headed down to College Station tomorrow. I am. To uh, cover – because it does feel like Mike Elko is his first National Signing Day has more news, more newsiness happening. Yeah, I mean, we saw Sark for a whole week at the Sugar Bowl. You know, we've kind of done the Texas Day um, – you know, he's been there for a few years now, so not as many hires in, in the staff. But, you know, for Elko, it's not only the signing class, but he'll talk about why he picked Colin Klein as his offensive coordinator, why, why he went the way he did defense, what he was trying to do with the staff, what he's trying to do with the enrollees and the transfers. I think they have over 22 transfers, you know, that are coming in. You um, know, I, I think what's interesting about, you know, I used to be the recruiting guy at, at the Statesman, so I uh, worked at Rivals for a long time. So recruiting is kind of like my secondary love. And, Back in the day, I know I'm, I'm not that old, but back in the day, if you signed 22 players and four of them were early enrollees, that was a pretty decent amount of early enrollees, probably a couple quarterbacks or something. Now, out of the 22 players Texas has signed, 18 of them are already on campus, much less, you know, waiting for that secondary signing period. So what we thought of as National Signing Day, you know, five, ten years ago is, is no longer National Signing Day. Early signing period is, is really National Signing Day. Uh, this is just for a few stragglers and uh, – some guys who maybe got out of their letter intense because of, of coaching changes. And uh, for the state of Texas, the biggest story is Terry Bussey, the athlete at Timpson uh, who won a state championship there in the, in the 2A level. He's been an A&M commit forever, uh, LSU making a, a real run at him. And so that, that's going to kind of dictate the happiness or sadness in College Station tomorrow. What has been uh, to your realm since you cover, you know, we cover Texas and here on the Horn and a lot of Longhorn conversation on the daily, but uh, Texas A&M, you cover all the schools in the state for Dave Campbell's. What what has been the buzz for, for Mike Elko in his first month on the job or however long it's been now? 
Yeah, I think it's been mostly good. I think the staff he's put together, just kind of football dudes that, that you know, kind of go with that blue-collar mentality that he's trying to bring. I think that's what Texas A&M fans want their football team to be. They want the defense. They want the wrecking crew. They want the smash-mouth running game and the big offensive line. I mean, that's traditionally what Texas A&M football is about, kind of being the antithesis of maybe what Sarkeesian's doing here in, in Texas with the, with the fast and the fun and, and the exciting offense and stuff like that. They kind of want to – get back to that R.C. Slocum uh, style of football. And they talked about that during the process. I think that's why Mel Mike Elko ended up uh, kind of being at the top of their list in terms of replacements. And so I think so far so good. You know, there's that honeymoon period, right? I mean, they, they opened the season against Notre Dame at home. And so, you know, they lose that football game, and he's going to figure out what happens in College Station when you lose football games, just like all coaches do uh, when they finally get their first loss. But I think right now – Everybody's enjoying the staff that they put together, and I think he's put together a, a pretty excellent transfer staff. It doesn't have a lot of stars. Like, they lost an Evan Stewart. They lost a Walter Nolan. They're not going to bring in guys that have those kind of recruiting or, or even the guys that have those kind of draft prospects. But they brought in a lot of really good football players with a lot of production at other places and a lot of times have more than just one year of eligibility left. Um, and I've always heard coaches talk about you recruit for potential, you portal for production. And they've portaled a lot of guys who have played college football that you don't have to guess whether they can handle it or not. They already have. Yeah, and, so, and some of the levels. But what are they going to be come you know, SEC competition time? That'll be the question for them as you develop. But, yeah, you, if you can play football, you can play football. We're watching Max Aismas in basketball playing at Oral Roberts. But, you know, he's one of the best cards in the Big 12, too. Because if you can put the ball in the basket, you can put the ball in the basket. Uh, and I do think it's interesting because, uh, you know, Rod talks about this a lot because Rod is a uh, – Football theorist, self-proclaimed, but he actually is. He loves to st the study the theories of football. And I'm just reading a story in the New York Times this morning about uh, um, Kyle Shanahan and his bunch formations, right, his condensed sets that Rod has taught us about for show after show, which is, you know, essentially for years the, the spread offense that was run was designed to create space. What, Michael, what Kyle Shanahan has been on the forefront of is condensing those sets and then using the empty spaces to create the leverage. And, you know, Rod talks about all the time in the bunch formations and, you know, condensed sets and things. It's just, you know, but you, you always want to be on the forefront of that, right? You always want to be – that's what a football theorist, as Rod says, does. And to, to Sark's credit, when Sark got here, he, he's admitted he studied the teams that were making the Final Four. Mm -hmm. How are they constructed? How are they built? What are their what, – what, what traits do they have? Well, they all had really good quarterback play. <laughs> so let's rebuild our quarterback room. They, they had great big offensive and defensive lines, so the big humans. And, you know, and they had speed. They had speed everywhere, uh, especially at wide receiver and then on the outside. And that's, you know, that's not like rocket science, but it is good to study what's winning and what's winning in your conference and what type of teams. And that's what he has set out to build at Texas diligently, big humans, speed, and quarterbacks. And Texas A&M would add one more to that. That's defensive-minded coach. Okay. Right? You look at the Kirby Smarts, the Nick Sabans. I mean, there hasn't been a head coach who's the offensive play caller win a national championship, I think, in 20 years. Maybe one. Maybe Jim, Jimbo Fisher, I think, is at Florida State, is the only one since the 2000s that's had a, a play caller be the head coach. And so it's been – now, some of that's coincidence, right? Alabama, Georgia, like a lot of the places that win national championships, they have to have a defensive coach. Uh, but that, that was what A&M was looking for. That's why Mark Stoops' name popped out there, you know, initially. They won a defensive-minded coach who can follow that same Georgia-Alabama uh, route to success. Uh, and they think they found that with Mike Elko. Time will tell. Uh, but that, that's kind of – they were doing that same thing, trying to do an autopsy of – 
hey, let's look at the, la the last 10, 15 teams that have won a national championship. What are some common denominators? One of the things that they found was a defensive-minded head coach. Well, to your point, I mean, Sark can't make himself a defensive coach, and he was hired, but he hired Pete Kwiatkowski. And, you know, much like we heard earlier this morning, Dan Quinn, the new Washington coach, talking about why he hired Cliff Kingsbury, he said, any time I went against him, he gave me fits. I mean, he was hell to stop. Much like I thought of Kyle Shanahan when he hired Kyle Shanahan in Washington. So Dan Quinn saying, you know, I've always had my eye on Cliff if I could ever bring him. And now he's coming to Washington. And that's what Sark said about Pete Kwiatkowski is that, you know, whether I was, you know, he was a Boise State or he was at Washington. Whenever I went up against PK, man, that guy gave me hell. <laughs> and uh, to, the, to that point, you bring in a defensive coordinator who you really trust. And, you know, the, the way we, the, the Sark Longhorns have built this roster – you know, it started with the offense. Let's be fair about that. Sark is an offensive guy. It started with the offensive line, uh, started with quarterback, started with speed. And now, as Rod and I have talked about a lot, and you, would, it, it's time to get to the defense. And PK's being able to assemble the pieces he needs to run his defense. I think for the first couple of years, it was really using guys that maybe didn't fit what he wanted to do, so he'd kind of mold it. Uh, now, look, go back to when he was at Washington. It was you know, the 2-5-4 defense, right, or 2-4-5, however you wanted to do it, or 2-4-5. So, so two big, sturdy tackles who just hold the point. And then four linebackers that are hybrid players. They can do a lot of different things. They can edge rush. You know, think Colin Simmons, think uh, Ethan Burke, think these guys that can put their hand on the ground and rush but also can get after it. Uh, and then traditional linebackers, which they want. And you had, you know, think Jalen Ford last year. This year it'll be Leona LaFau and uh, these others. And then, you know, really – versatile, big defensive backs that can cross-train, play safety, disguise coverage, play corner. And now you're with these last couple of classes, what you're seeing Pete Kwiatkowski build on defense and into the portal with a guy like Andrew Makuba, a guy like Trey Moore coming in from UTSA. It does feel like PK is now getting to build his side of the ball a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and, and football is, is cyclical, and, and defense has to be reactionary in a way, right? And I remember when Texas A&M joined the, big, or the SEC and Johnny Manziel kind of ran all over that conference. You know, Nick Saban, Kirby Smart kind of looked around and go, okay, we're too big on defense. Our linebackers need to get faster. Our safeties need to get faster. The spread is coming. It's, it's going to be all across college football. It's not just a Big 12 thing. Uh, and they reacted to that, right? Well, football is becoming positionalist. Guys like Kyle Shanahan are, are creating offensive football where your running back can play wide receiver, your wide receiver can play running back, your tight ends can split out, right? And so you have to counter that defensively and come up with defensive guys who don't just play one single thing, that they can, they can play in the nickel, they can play in a 4-3, they can play on the edge, they can cover a little bit. Uh, and that's going to take a little bit of time to build the trust on Because Sark had immediate – uh, trust on the recruiting trail as an offensive guy. Yep. All right. You have to build that, you know, for somebody like Kwiatkowski. That's not a household name, especially in Texas and in the Southeast. They had to build that trust over years. I think they they have that after after a few years of playing really good football, especially after making the college football playoff. And you've seen the defensive caliber, the caliber of defensive player start to match the caliber of offensive player that they've been recruiting the whole time. Well, and you can see it with this year. I mean, they, they're going to have four really good linebackers that can rush the passer, but can also drop into coverage where they need them. They will have edge players uh, and Colin Simmons and Colton Vosick and Ethan Burke and Baron Sorrells. Uh, and then what they really are looking for is those big defensive tackles, and that's why getting the kid from, from Arizona to come in, Sadir Mitchell needs to develop. Um, you know, Alfred Collins needs to have a really good year for them up front, Vernon Broughton uh, up front. So, But then, man, you can see where that secondary is going, where you're going to be, you know, Derek Williams should be a star, uh, the big, rangy, cover like crazy, the long arms, they call him the Raptor, to go with Andrew Makuba and Jade Barron, two, two 5 one two kids who are, are good buddies. 
that's a really versatile set of safeties who can do a lot of different things in coverage and up and support the run and create plays. And then you've got uh, the, you know, the corners on the outside and Manny Muhammad and Terrence Brooks, I mean, that can really cover. Uh, and that's uh, it's obviously the, 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 the plan to move into the SEC. You want to be versatile where you can be big and physical when you play a, a physical run team. That's why the, the addition through the portal of Kendrick Blackshire from, from Alabama is big, right? He's, he's a box linebacker, which box linebackers don't play a lot, but you will play some teams, Michigan, week two, that you need a box linebacker uh, that can saddle up, take on a fullback, and, uh, you know, play traditional football. That's when you get really good because uh, you, 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 you can kind of mix and match depending on who you're playing on your schedule week by week. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, we're going to learn so much about the state of Texas in the first two weeks of the college football season. I mean, A&M starts with, with the game against Notre Dame, then Texas goes to Michigan in, in week two. So we're going to figure that out um, pretty quickly. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think if you're Texas, you feel better about the talent on your defensive side of the football than you have since, I mean, probably Matt Brown was on campus, right? Yeah, I, mean, I think it, so. It's been a Will long Muschamp. Time, right, it's been a long time since you could look at the two deep on the defense and just go, okay, well, that's a dude, that's a dude. How do you even get that guy on the football field, right? Like, they, they have those issues now where you start looking at the backups pushing the starters for, for a long time. You know, there wasn't a ton of depth to push those frontline players, and it's probably why they didn't perform as well. There's not, there's not as many guys behind you to kind of make you raise your game up a little bit. And so I think Texas is finally getting into that on the defense. They've had this on the offensive side of the ball the last couple of years. I think finally on the defensive side of the ball, um, that, that young talent is going to end up being better than some of that older talent that was experienced and kept their spots, but now they're getting replaced by guys with much higher upside. Yeah, well, and I think to, to the secondary point, that was the frustration of all Longhorn fans last year was the safeties and coverage. And, you know, the well, that's that's because they had, they had uh, safeties who were – you know, they, they had strengths, but they also had a weakness. And when they were on the field, the defense, the offense would attack their weakness. Yeah. Uh, and they didn't, have a, they didn't have a set of safeties that could do, a lot of, do all the things, right? So they, kind of t- they, they would have a tell. Okay, this, they're planning for run here because they got their run safeties on the clear so we can go, go deep and go pass and try to get them in one-on-one coverage. You know, this is what you're trying to disguise on the defense. And you're right, they do have more players pushing. And that's, uh, you know, this is to your point of you recruit for the future, but you portal for, for – uh, you recruit high school for the foundation. You recruit the portal for needs and for production. And Texas absolutely did that. I know how many total portal players did A and M bring in? Do we know? Is it fifteen or sixteen? Maybe more. I know Texas. Oh no, had, it's it's twenty. 20- 23, 22, 23, something like that. Well, well, because they had a lot of guys of their own into the portal. Mm-hmm. Like Texas lost 13 through the portal but added eight, right. um, which uh, real good attrition for the Longhorns. And But the eight that Texas brought in all, I mean, especially a wide receiver and tight end, I mean, they can be immediate impact um, because, you know, you're bringing in, you know, three really good receivers and then I, uh, Nye Black, the tight end, who's not JT Sanders, but he is a vertical threat in the passing game. This Texas, you just said it, the defense should be more versatile and, and deeper. The offense is going to be more explosive next year than it was this year um, because, uh, you know, Jaden Blue is one of the fastest running backs in this league. It's going to be he and C.J. Baxter. What a thunder and lightning combination that will be. You know, I, I saw our friend Chip Brown had a report the other day from 24-7 Sports that one of the scouts he talked to, you know, says that Jaden Barron has a Jameer Gibbs kind of skill set uh, just with the outright speed. And so if you combine a big back and a little back, and then you've got speed everywhere. Because last year with Texas in the receiving game, you, you, you know, your one speed guy was X-Man. Your route runner was, was A.D. Mitchell and probably your red zone guy. Jordan Whittington was a running back out there. Uh, and then, you know, J.T. Sanders became your really biggest matchup problem. Well, you're going to have four guys out there that can run, like really run. 
like, okay, what do we – we're going to overwhelm you with speed. When you're going Matthew Golden, Vaughn from Alabama, um, Silas Bolden coming in from Oregon State, uh, to go with Jonte Cook, and then you had a, a, a Amari Nyblack from, from Alabama, the speed tight end. You, you mean that because you know what you know. Defensive coordinators are terrified of speed. Oh yeah, terrified of speed. And if you can put five, and if you consider Jaday Barron <laughs> with the speed he's going to bring, that's a really fast offense with a really good quarterback and what should be an experienced offensive line. That's pretty scary. I think Sark has really put on. We've talked about this on the podcast before. I think Sark has really put on a master class on how to build a roster in modern football yep. with the portal. Um, and he's done it like the NFL, and I, I think some of the his, the experience he had in the NFL around roster management helps him because you use the recruiting from high school like you use the NFL draft, and then you use the portal like you would use free agency to kind of just fix a couple of the spots that maybe you just you whiffed on in, on the recruiting or it didn't work out or that guy transferred or the guy you really think is going to be your next whatever is still a freshman or a sophomore and just hasn't developed quickly enough. You go get that guy to bridge that gap you go get a Trey Moore on the edge to bring you instant production while those other young guys like Colin Simmons maybe grow up a little bit and become three down football players Um, you're building the plane as you're flying it right now in college football because everything is so new nobody's had to do it this way before Uh, but I think we're going to look back in 10 years and realize that Sarkeesian was one of those coaches that got it early that understood uh, how to do it early and Texas has benefited from having somebody in charge that has seen NFL rosters, that understands free agency, because that's all the portal is. If you start looking at the portal as if it's NFL free agency, in my opinion, it makes a lot more sense conceptually as a fan. Yeah, and as a coach, and you don't want to overuse it because any anybody that follows the NFL knows if you're overusing the the uh, the free agent market, that means you're overpaying, exactly, and that means you didn't draft well because yeah. you're you're having to fill too many holes. If you're drafting well, and you, to your point of the high school recruiting. You know, Kelvin Banks is your left tackle. This year they're bringing in Brandon Baker from Modern Day, who's a five-star, who if when Kelvin Banks moves on to the NFL next year can slide over and be your left tackle, right? You want a left tackle, you want a quarterback, you need pass rushers, you need speed. And, yes, he's doing that through the, uh, the, the high school ranks as the foundation and then plugging holes through free agency, uh, as we know it as NIL. And, yes, he, you know, Texas has deep NIL pockets. That's help. That helps for sure. Uh, but at the same time, the one thing I've said consistently about Sark since he got here and we started covering him, he doesn't bellyache about stuff. Like, you know, I'm sure there are things about college football he hates, like a lot of people do, the Dabo Swinney's of the world, but he doesn't complain about it. I mean, there's just nothing you can do. You, you have to compete in this realm until they get it fixed, right? And I can, I can say I don't like it, and he'll probably say it tomorrow with his press conference. He's got availability. But, you know, I still have to work within it and maximize it to, to the best as we can as it's getting fixed. You said the plane is still being built here, uh, but those who embrace it and are like, okay, I mean, I like this all that much. I wish it was different, but I'm, I'm not – I mean, Dabo Swinney to this moment has still not added a transfer portal player, not one. <laughs> yeah. Like he's, he's like just being adamantly stubborn about it. Well, is that what's best for your program? Is that what – because Clemson's already sliding, guys. And you're not adding any pieces when there's really good pieces available. And if you're a Clemson fan, you have to be driving yourself crazy because you're a program that that kids want to go play in because you've won recently. Well, while they were growing up, you were winning championships. And you're not even using that brand and trying to use that uh, that as an asset to say, man, we could fill some holes here. Nope, nope, that's not how it should be. He keeps taking assistant coaches from the portal, though. Um, (laughs) He's fine with paying those guys uh, in the portal. I I think when you – we talked yesterday about how Bill Belichick didn't get another job, and it's it's the same thing, right? Like, you're just not evolving with the game. Yeah. Um, And and Dabo and Clemson 
they never recruited like Ohio State or Alabama. Um, they weren't like a top two, top three every single year recruiting. Uh, if you look at the the blue chip ratio, Clemson's not up there in the top five. They're usually 9, 10, 11, but they had generational quarterbacks. They had culture. They had continuity uh, that, that allowed them to, to bridge that gap and go win football games. Well, that doesn't – you're not going to do that anymore. Like that, you know, like you're not going to get Trevor Lawrence every single year. You're not going to get Deshaun Watson every single year. How are you going to go fill your roster uh, on the back end? And he just hasn't done it. He hasn't evolved with the time. And I think that's something that Sark has has shown that he's excellent at is, yeah, you may not like it all. And we, we all live lives, right, where things happen that we may not like it all that much. But you, you can't just whine until you're blue in the face. you got to go figure it out, evolve with those times, and, and go – take advantage of the opportunities that are out there. I think Texas has a lot of obvious advantages in modern college football. And to Sark's credit, he's leaned into them uh, and went ahead and used them and made the roster better for it. Yeah, which is why when Nick Saban left Alabama, he wasn't interested in going to fill those shoes. He's good right here, uh, building what he's got. And I think that's a good point. And I've always compared what Dabo Swinney does to Mac Brown because Mac Brown did the same thing when he got stale at Texas and stopped evolving. Uh, it wasn't until he took five years off and came back that Mac right. Brown kind of understood, oh, yeah, I probably should have been doing that. You know, Dabo Swinney, too. Uh, but you said it, generational quarterbacks, great culture. What was Mac Brown built on? Yep. Generational quarterbacks, great uh, culture. And talent, for sure. It's not like they don't have talent. But, you know, Vince Young into Colt McCoy into what was supposed to be Garrett Gilbert, and that was on the heels of Chris Sims and Major Applewhite. Um, you know, if you look at what Dabo did, he had that Deshaun Watson right into Trevor Lawrence and – DJ Uyunglele was supposed to be the next guy, and he wasn't. And he, was he was not. And, you know, Cade Klubnick has come in behind that, and everything else is sliding and now not attacking the portal. There's some college football. Tomorrow is National Signing Day. Uh, we'll talk to you about it. And, obviously, Mike will be down there at College Station, so be looking for his stories uh, from Aggieland on what's going on with Mike Elko. We will also uh, pick up the uh, NFL conversation. Super Bowl is coming up on Sunday. We'll hear some of the audio from Super Bowl Sunday night or Super Bowl Monday, what did they call it? The opening night, Super Bowl opening night? That was last night. They had the big festivities. We'll play some of the fun, good stuff. There was a lot of zany stuff, um, but we'll get to some of the, the meat and potatoes, talking football, including Kyle Shanahan talking about this, uh, this uh, Brock Purdy quarterback of his. Also, uh, some other sound from the, uh, the, the Super Bowl festivities. We're coming back. Hook him up with Ian Rodby. Aaron Hogan, Rod Babers, Hook Em Up, 1019 AM 1260, The Horn. All right, Toby Keith all morning long, and did you know, and Ty, I know you're going to love this, Ty Henderson, our producer. I think a lot of people, even though she's over in Tokyo, will be waiting for uh, some type of sentiment or tribute from Taylor Swift for Toby Keith because did you know that uh, you could you could largely credit Toby Keith for discovering Taylor Swift well that's who to blame Ty there you go uh, obviously she's a global megastar but when she was an up-and-coming teenager in Nashville singing at the Bluebird Cafe she was first discovered by then DreamWorks Records executive uh, Scott Borchetta uh, who impressed with Swift's young talent that's where Toby Keith came in Toby left his former label DreamWorks Records and founded his own called Show Dog in Nashville. And uh, it resulted in the closing of the DreamWorks label. But it provided Toby the infrastructure to not only release his own music but sign artists. And one of the young artists he signed was Taylor Swift as a teenager. There you go. So, yes, uh, she had uh, – he was in – there's video out there of her as a 
you know, just a 16-year-old kid uh, trying to, you know, impress. And Toby Keith saw the talent and at least noticed that there's something there. And now, uh, so I'm assuming, even though she's, I believe, in Japan, so a time difference, I think we'll probably hear something from Taylor Swift on a, you know, a tribute to Toby Keith. I'm always impressed with young people who have that kind of drive and understanding of what they want to do, right? Like, take your opinions of Taylor Swift off the table. But for a 16-year-old to, to have that kind of drive, to know what they want to do, to be performing, to already be working on that. Like, when I was 16, I had no idea. You know, I just didn't want to get in trouble. I just wanted to get home from the end of the day. You know what I mean? Like, I was just trying to get by. I didn't even think about what I wanted to do as an adult or how to, like, go about finding it and stuff like that. Um, so I always do – I love those stories of, like, people being just super young and just knowing – having that kind of drive and determination. Well, I could I, I did want to do this job when I was a kid. I mean, that was – Did you? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, from, from when I was, you know, teenager, younger even. Because I, I was – I've always told the story that I was the the kid that would watch a baseball or a football game and then listen to the post-game call-in show. I, was, I, I loved the, uh, the whole concept of that, of, you know, taking phone calls and talking about it. What'd you see? This is even before the internet where you can immediately react to any damn thing you see play by play. Because that, you know, I've really had a struggle with that, Mike, about, because uh, my, you know, the digital folks want us to be live tweeting and saying things. And um, I, I like to wait till the game's over and then give my opinions on because so much changes. I mean, so many times somebody will say a dumb tweet in the first half about, this guy really sucks, and he ends up winning the game for the team, you know, because it's a long game. And that's, the story's not written. The book's not over yet here, y'all. Uh, which, but again, you know, these day and age, you're supposed to you're supposed to tweet something very uh, opinionated about every play, every play that happens. Which I'm like, you know, calm down. It's just a bad play that happens in a game of any kind. Um, but that that was always me. So I grew up, and then and of course I grew up, and there wasn't even sports radio. It didn't even exist. There were sports shows. And I've always said that's why I told my parents I want to do sports radio. Like, what, what is that? Uh, and then, you know, I, I don't know. I guess I had a good understanding that it was coming because there was, you know, and I've always said one of the things that taught me that, that yes, I could do this was having – when Dallas Cowboys training camp was in, was in Austin was when I was at St. Ed's. So I got to see it. I would see all – because the really, especially in the state of Texas in the south, the sports radio began in Dallas. Uh, with those Cowboys teams. That's really, if you want to look at, you know, there were, Boston and Dallas were the first, New York, of course, but really as far as sports cities, Boston and Dallas were the first two big ones. And, you know, Dallas, that Cowboys team that won the three Super Bowls and Jimmy Johnson and then the divorce and all that, I mean, that drove the ticket in those stations. I mean, because when you talk about well, how did the ticket become this Goliath, I mean, it was that they – the fan passion was so big that then, and so well, that, and then you just tune into these guys on the radio, and then even when the Cowboys are bad, you're just used to you, the habit is formed. You're listening to these guys, and you know it grows, and that's what sports radio is, and that's why doing this for so long in this market, you know, you you ride the wave of the cow of the Longhorns. When they're good, they're good. When they're bad, they're bad. And man, when they're good, the casual fan shows back up, and the person that doesn't really listen when the bad times are there. But yes, I I, I didn't have the drive of Taylor Swift. I'll tell you that. Uh, you know, I I, I kind of knew and I got caught some breaks and uh, you know found my way. But I did know that that's what I wanted to do. And fortunately, it worked out. Like a break, like being at St. Edwards when the Cowboys are training there. So I get to meet a few people along the way when I'm going to college. That uh, hey, you know, and, and you, I used to see them set up their broadcast, tear it down, all that stuff. I used to watch. So yeah, lucky that way. But you're right about Taylor Swift. I mean, the, the, got the young kid that was doing sports casting right. at uh, the, the deal. Yes. This kid already knows, man. Good for him. But yes, Taylor There's Swift. There's clarity in there that I never had, right? And I'm I'm jealous of that kind of clarity. Uh, I did. I mean, I got into this out of luck. Like I was out of college. I was substitute teaching out in Leander ISD. Uh, the old sports editor of the Round Rock 
uh, newspaper when I was at Cedar Park. We used, we played Round Rock schools four times out of you know every single year. Uh, he needed a freelancer to cover Hutto football in 2009. There you go. And I was like, I'll do it. It was like $35 a game or something like that. And then the sports editor left, and they were just like, hey, you want to be the sports editor? And I had been working for like two months. I'm sure. Like, sure, I'll take it. And then, you know, 13 years later, here I am. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, and so, yeah, well, and I've, I have three, three grown children, three grown young adults now who I've always had because, you know, they don't. I, I knew what I wanted to do. They didn't. I had to be careful not to. Mm. Come on, find what you're looking for. Right. I always encourage them, but uh, my daughter is more that way. She, my daughter is on a, on a path, straight track. I mean, hey, I, I always knew this is what I wanted to do, just by by listening to you and others here on the station oh. and, and before the station. It's it's it's, and I've been lucky enough to have some good opportunities too. It's a lot of it's luck. And well, sure yeah, knowing sure. you what you want to do helps, but you know, being being lucky and knowing people helps. This says, uh, e, I'm about your age, grew up in Dallas, and we had sports on the AM dial pretty early. We had sports in Houston. I mean, I, the sure. call-in shows after, uh, KTRH had a, like an afternoon sports talk show that was like three hours long, like four to seven or something. But there wasn't like a full-time 24-hour sports radio channel until the 90s, at least that I was aware of uh, in these area, this area. And gosh, we put the first sports, you know, the zone was the first 24-hour sports station in Austin. We put that on the air in the late 90s. And I was a part of that. Then putting it on FM on 104.9 was, you know, the first one. And so now here we are. Now there's, there's two or three stations. So that's good. That's what it is. And it takes the passion. It takes, you know, population growth. And Dallas and Houston have always had that. They've sure. always had the population. But and then they had and multiple teams. Yeah, the, the fan passion that comes with being an Astros and a Rockets. And that's how I grew up. And that's why I'm a cynical. I, I assume the worst with my teams because I was a Houston fan my whole life. So, you know, the Astros would always disappoint. The Oilers would always disappoint. I told you the reason that I uh, I struggle in relationships and stuff is because the Oilers left when I was, like, nine, and I just realized that, like, nothing is permanent. Nothing is. You know? Your first love rips your right, heart out, and you're right. like, I'm not, I'm, like not, oh, this stinks. I'm not committing long-term yeah. anymore. Yeah. That's kind of mine. Because my, the, my first love of a, of a sports team, literally as a kid, was the Five Slamma Jamma Houston Cougars. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was because I was, what, 10, 11, 12? In that phase, as they were coming through, and they never won one. Yeah. Damn guy, Lewis. Mine was Peter Gardere. <laughs> Peter Gardere, Peter the Great. <laughs> my the first the I, so I was born in '85. Uh, my first real memory of being at a football game is the Hurricanes Texas Cotton Bowl. Hurric- oh yeah, you told me that story. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah like you kind of started rooting three. for the Hurricanes. Yeah, because I was young, and the 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 you know uh, the Fab Five at Michigan with the baggy shorts, like rap music was getting really big. I'm from a, a very country family, right? So like, I think every kid tries to be the opposite of their dad and stuff like that. So I I remember being at that Cotton Bowl and like my dad and my grandfather just like constantly talking bad about Miami football. Be being like, oh, that's kind of cool. And I feel like history has been on my side because now we do definitely look back at those U teams as, as undeniably cool. Yeah. Well, and that's what kids do. You know, so you kind of like that Miami team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're rebels. No, it's like, y'all don't like them, so I'm going to like them. <laughs> uh, I do remember as a, you know, that, so heartbreak was my, my sports growing up. And uh, so I'm used to that for sure. All right, good stuff right there. Uh, let me play some sound because uh, it would be heartbreaking, I think, for Kyle Shanahan if his team doesn't win the Super Bowl this year, right? I think as we agreed earlier, or you agree with the statement, the, 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 the person in, involved in the Super Bowl with the most pressure is Kyle Shanahan. Like, he yeah. hasn't won one. Uh, you know, Patrick Mahomes is a made man. Andy Reid's made. Uh, Travis Kelsey. I mean, Niners. It's Kyle Shanahan here uh, because it's it's his Super Bowl to win. They're favored. He's got, you know, he's had bad health issues on his team where he's come in and key guys are hurt. And, uh, like, last year in the NFC Championship game with Brock Purdy, well, here they are. They're healthy. 
and uh, it's a full squad. You got two weeks to get ready to take on the great Andy Reid and the great uh, Peter, you know, Patrick Mahomes. Well, let's hear from Kyle Shanahan from last night. Uh, and Kyle, this was, you know, we, we played the sound on the show this, this week or last week. Jed York, the owner, telling a story last week and you know, getting a chuckle out of the media that uh, when Brock Purdy was Mr. Irrelevant and the last pick of the draft and they already had Jimmy Garoppolo and Trey Lance and they traded a bunch of number ones to go get Trey Lance and they paid Jimmy Garoppolo a lot of money. Um, Kyle Shanahan was telling, told the owner that, you know, my best quarterback is this third guy. And, of course, the owner got mad about it. I was like, what? What are you talking about? Why, why, then why are we paying Jimmy Garoppolo? <laughs> and uh, listen to Kyle Shanahan talking about uh, – because uh, uh, later this week or over the weekend, it was uh, John Lynch, the GM, who said, yeah, I was standing there and my jaw was on the ground. I was like, are you really telling the owner that that's the best? What are we doing here? Uh, that takes some balls, young man. Well, here's Kyle Shanahan explaining that he had just come off the practice field. He's a little irritated. But, yes, he did tell the owner that three years ago, and here's why. Well, it's, it's, it's funny to hear Jed say that because – it wasn't the smartest moment I've ever had. I mean, when owner comes in after training camp practices and it's like, hey, how's the quarterback? And he, what he means is the starter yeah. or the second. And you and Irritation go, I don't know, but our third guy's the best. Like, that's not what he wants to hear. So that's why he remembers it very strong. But that was just more, Brock was so good right away with every rep he got. He was always the same. And he only got a couple of them. So it was easy for me to say, because in his few reps, he was the best. But if you know that for a fact, I mean, then you do what you do right away. But he was the best, and, but you ease that on. And every time he got a little more reps, it was the same as when he only got two. And so when it was all said and done and he got a lot of playing time, I was like, oh, this looks exactly like what I told you when I was irritated. And he only had three reps. And I said, no, he's the best. but. That's what was so real about Brock. That's why after his seven games, his rookie year, even when he got hurt, we knew what we had because he'd been that way in practice every day, and it was the exact same way in the games. All right, so there it is, that, uh, you know, consistency. That's what the coach is looking for, especially at that position. Well, listen to this now. This one's a little different because someone, I found this on social media, and they had recorded it from their television, so they saw the audio, but it's from the same interview and the same conversation from Kyle Shanahan last night. And this is him explaining the game manager concept, right? The whole fans, I think, uh, struggle with the, the concept of game manager. And then what separates a game manager from an elite quarterback? Listen to Kyle Shanahan's explanation of, um, you know, the, the position of playing quarterback for last night's, uh, you know, uh, Monday opening night. Like, so I don't get how being a system quarterback and a game manager is a negative. Like, the job of a quarterback is to manage the game. And it is to run the system. The system is what you work on all week. That's what the whole line works on. That's what your five eligibles work on. That's everything. And the quarterback, if you want to be great, you better be able to run that system and you better be able to manage the game. But if you want to stay in that position, understand that no system is going to be perfect. There's going to be times where you have no answers. And if you want to stay there, you better make some plays. And that's how you become a consistent quarterback. You're a game manager. You run the system right, and you can make plays. And if you don't have those three things, it's a matter of time. One game, two game, two years, it's a matter of time. But Brock does all three of those things, so I don't, I don't get what we're talking about. <laughs> there you go. And that's a really – and I know I've heard Rod say similar, and, of course, Rod and Shano are good friends, and I'm sure they've had that conversation together. But that's it, right? The job is to manage the game. But then the elite quarterbacks, if you think about any of them, your favorite quarterbacks – when the play breaks down 
or the, the original play call didn't happen and you have to go off script, do you make some plays that help move the chains and or put the ball in the end zone? That's what the best quarterbacks do, period. He just laid it out for you. Think of Vince Young. I mean, Vince Young was the system when he was at Texas back in the day. But, you know, even, even a guy like uh, Patrick Mahomes, I mean, how often does he make a playoff script that keeps a, a drive alive and make a play like that? That's why he's the, uh, the elite and the best. And they can t- you can play it right back into what Shannon said. Like Jimmy Garoppolo in this Super Bowl four years ago just didn't make plays. There were, there were plays there to be made. We need you to make that play. We need you to hit that pass, Mike. Uh, and, and if you've watched the, the NFC playoffs and the Packers game and the Lions game, when they needed it most, Brock Purdy made a ton of plays. The, the quarterback position may be the most intangible base position in sports. And it's why we see Tom Brady become the GOAT. A three-star quarterback in Patrick Mahomes become maybe the next, the next greatest of all time. The last pick of the NFL draft in, in the Super Bowl. It's not so much – the rocket arm and the big size and the, it's the ability to handle the pressure, to make a mistake, to have the guts to put a ball in a place that may not be good, but like you know you have to take the chance in this moment and knowing when not to take the chance in that moment and taking the sack or throwing it away and punting the football. Um, I think when you look around the NFL, the guys who handle the pressure, the guys who handle the, their failures, and the guys who have that ability to just like wipe the slate clean go to the next play, go to the next quarter, go to the next half, go to the next game. Those guys last. And that seems to be what Brock Purdy's uh, kind of his best trait is, is that he, he doesn't seem to have a ton of fear. No, right? none. He, he plays with a lot of confidence. Um, what the, the guy from BYU that's the New York Jets quarterback. Zach Wilson. Him, like Zach Wilson has more arm talent than oh. Brock Purdy could ever dream of having. But he doesn't have that confidence and the – the ability to go make a mistake and know that it's not going to define him, right? And like, so he doesn't, he's not allowed, he can't lead men with that kind of mentality. If you want to be a quarterback who walks into a locker room who leads men, you have to be somebody who has the confidence in yourself to, to make mistakes and the confidence in yourself to know when you shouldn't go make the mistake. And it seems like Brock Purdy's got both of those. Things. You're right about that. And as uh, Kyle Shanahan just said, uh, he noticed it from a very early stage of his uh, professional career. And not to make it all about Dak Prescott, but that Cowboy fans know that's the problem with Dak Prescott. He's a great game manager. He runs the team. Uh, he, you know, the, he's a great leader. He says the right things all the time. And, but, boy, in the biggest moments, we need you to go make a play. We need you to go make a play because uh, we're playing really good defenses here. And we also need you to not make that play. That where you throw it to the other team in this spot, you can't do that. And unfortunately for Dak, over his you know eight years now, that's been the been the norm in biggest moments. And Brock Purdy at a young age has already shown, man, I can go make a play. You're a baseball guy, sure. Um, when you don't want the ball to come to you, it's getting oh, hit error. to you every single time. And Dak 85. seems like the guy who doesn't want to make the mistake in the big moments, and so those mistakes happen. Like that, that you start thinking if you're driving your car and you start thinking about not going to the right, you're going to start going to the right. Like that's how our brains brains work. powerful, yeah. Uh, and I, I think Purdy's uh, superpower. Uh, isn't his talent? It's his brain. It's 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 his uh, just his psyche, his ability to not worry about going and make the, having the confidence to know that an interception is not going to define you, uh, but you can get back up and go make two or three more plays, and it erases that. You're right about that. All right, good stuff. I want to play one more, and then we'll get to the timeout, come back and wrap it up with what's popping. Uh, but this is Brock Purdy. And listen to this as we talk about him. Talk about a humble guy. You know, he's, he's obviously the star of the show. He was asked, do you, do you mind being called Mr. Irrelevant? And he's like, no, I kind of embrace it. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to be sitting over here with not a lot of uh, questions coming my way. But uh, listen to him talking about uh, his, his role on this football team and his, his place in the Niners' locker room. I mean, 
the bottom line is like life isn't about you. Like that's what I believe, you know, um, being a part of something bigger than yourself. Um, you know, you get wrapped up in getting all the glory and the fame and the status. It's, I feel like that's a shallow life and, um, that, that can, you know, fade away pretty quickly. So for me, it's, you know, obviously, yeah, we're playing the Super Bowl. I'm very honored and thankful. I want to win a championship for this organization, but more than anything, I'm, you know, trying to just serve my guys on this team well and, and love on them well and the whole organization and everyone in my life. That's, that's how I view it. So. I love that quote. Yeah, isn't that good? Well, that's what all coaches are looking for, <laughs> that's a, a, a player who – and I'll say this about the Dak Prescott. That's Dak Prescott. Dak Prescott is a great teammate. Mm-hmm. And that's why I kind of feel bad for Dak, that he's, he just doesn't have that clutch gene. He doesn't have that fearlessness that, um, to rise up, and that's, that's what it takes. It really is. And, look, there's, no one's beating Patrick Mahomes right now, guys. So you, you have an elite level. that you, you can't compare anybody to Mahomes at this point. But so far, and, and you, I, the guy I feel the most bad for is, is poor Josh Allen. I mean, poor Josh Allen has been this close like three times to beating him. And he can't, his kicker misses a kick wide right to not go to overtime. His defense can't stop Patrick Holmes for 13 seconds to go to the Super Bowl. Poor Josh Allen is the one that wakes up and sees nightmares of Patrick Mahomes. Now Brock Purdy gets a chance to see it. Brock, Josh Allen's seen it several times. Uh, Jimmy Garoppolo and the, the Niners saw it four years ago when they were up in the fourth quarter, and he brought it back. Jalen Hurts found out last year you know, when they were up 24-14 and lose 38-35. This Mahomes is just – he's a cut above everybody. I think Mahomes is going to Michael Jordan a lot of great quarterbacks in this generation, <laughs> yeah. right, where we look back and we're like, how didn't that guy win a ring? How didn't that guy win a ring? And it's like, well, he played at the same time that Michael Jordan was in his prime. Uh, I think that's true with Patrick Mahomes as well. Like we're going to look at Josh Allen as not as good of a quarterback as we would if he played in a different generation and he won a couple. Oh, you're right about that. I mean, think Charles Barkley. Yeah, right. Exactly. And Akeem Olajuwon may not have won one if if, if Jordan hadn't retired for a couple yeah, of years. Yeah, he didn't have a gambling problem. Did he <laughs> <Yes>. go? <laughs> and now LeBron James is like partnered with DraftKings. Like I, you know, it's like when uh, SMU football players have to be so mad that like NIL is like oh, allowed yeah. now or whatever. Like you know, Jordan's like now y'all now gambling's cool. But I, I think one of the things that quarterbacks fall into the trap of with Mahomes is they think they have to go beat Patrick Mahomes and they don't Brock Purdy doesn't have to beat Patrick Mahomes the 49ers need to beat the Chiefs yeah and, and you just got to play your part in that mode because you're not going to just outplay the dude like he's he's the best that's going right now uh, but you need to help your team beat that team can we come back and uh, hit some what's popping to wrap things up? Appreciate Mike Craven, senior writer Dave Campbell's Texas Football, for being with us here at the back end of uh, yesterday and today. Rod Babers is expected back tomorrow, coming off his dental operation. Uh, we will come right back and uh, find out what is popping tonight on TV Sports. We'll get you the details coming next on Hook 'em Up with you. Sound like an intro, Jess on Give Me That Tempo. Uh, all right, what's popping? Uh, final segment on this fabulous fifth hour of our Tuesday conversation. We'll be popping to have Rod Babers back in-house tomorrow. We'll see. Hope he's feeling okay and ready to go and not just be here, but can he talk five hours after wisdom teeth extraction? We'll see. We'll manage regardless, that's for sure. Uh, also popping tonight, we mentioned Texas, huge Texas basketball game. Got to win this one. Uh, home court, you've already got three home losses, which are too many. You've got to protect that. That's tonight with Iowa State. That is a 7 o'clock tip. They're an elite defensive team. They're coming off that loss at Waco, Mike, on Saturday. It was just wild with all the horrible officiating. And uh, as we talked earlier this morning, if you missed a really good college basketball conversation in the 6 o'clock hour, long time ago now, we, we talked to Ari Temkin, my good buddy, who, you know, who is the voice of uh, Sirius XM's Big 12 radio. And he is a huge college basketball fan. And, uh, Kansas alum. Can, KU, yeah. He's a big Kansas guy. So, yeah, that's why we were talking about the, the Big 12 and how jumbled it is and his Jayhawks lost to Kansas State last night. And he told me, I didn't know this, Mike, Scott Drew's never been ejected from a basketball game. Mm-hmm. 
And the other night he got ejected for being outside his coach's box by a foot. Yeah. Like, hello, Mr. Ref Show. Can we – I mean, and, and of course, Mac Rose is – we're going to go after the – I mean, that, that is ridiculous. I mean, you have a perfectly good game going on here, and you decide you need to – how many times – I mean, you know, coaches run up and down the sidelines. Oh, it's so bad. I mean, Rodney Terry's all over the place over there. I mean, you watch a Marquette game, Shaka Smart is like on the court you know, showing his team how to play defense. <laughs> I mean, what are we doing? And I think the, the video I saw, because I didn't watch that game live, I mean, Scott Drew was just kind of like squanched down like a catcher. Yeah, he was kneeling. Kneeling down like yeah. a catcher would and watching his team, but he just wasn't in his box. And you can imagine if you're a coach and the ref comes over and says, hey, get in your box, you're going to be like, come on, man. And it was during a free – like, Iowa State was on the other end of the court shooting free throws. Like, it was like a dead ball situation, basically. And the referee just turned around, saw Scott Drew, you know, closer to half court than he was supposed to be and teed him up right away. You know, it was it, – you could tell it took a second for Scott to even realize what he had got just gotten teed up for. He looked back towards the bench thinking maybe somebody had said something that the, the referee had heard, and it ended up him being, you know, outside of his, his box. It just – I don't know. It just seems a little cookie-cutter. And ridiculous. Well, then he threw him out. Mm-hmm. And because he you – know, obviously, Scott Drew's like, come on, man. He reacted like most of us would. And then he threw out the uh, the assistant coach. <laughs> he teed him up, yeah. And, well, and this is the kind of stuff that will make people ask, has he got money on that game? Is he trying yeah. to get the line? Because that seems compl- – like in, in a game that's late in the second half and completely in control by Baylor, like what are we doing over yeah, here? Yeah, it was six, six free throws Iowa State got just from technical foul. And the ball. Yeah. Six free throws and the ball. Uh, you know, 12-point game becomes a, you know, three-point game real fast. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we doing here? Uh, all right, so Big 12 tonight, Texas-Iowa State. You know, so they're coming in with a bit of a sting because they almost won that game, ended up losing to Baylor. Uh, they had won. They'd been on a bit of a heater. Texas, of course, comes off the big win at TCU. With 19 points tonight, uh, uh, Mike, uh, Max Asmus will go past Oscar Robertson, the big O Ooh. on the all-time NCAA scoring list. He went past Danny Manning in the game on th- on Saturday, but he's he's 18 points back at the Big O. And this could be a, a big game for him. Iowa State's not a good three-point defensive team. Yep. Uh, they switch so much, they double so much, they, they're, they're going to leave guys open. So this is this is all about Texas's ability to shoot and make those shots. Like, if they play like they did against Baylor at home uh, a couple weeks ago where they were making everything, they could win. they're going to win this basketball game. Speaking of Baylor, they will play Texas Tech tonight in the game of the night, and that's 5-3 and three against 5-3. and three. They're both 16-5. and five. The game's in Waco. That is an 8 o'clock tip tonight. The Texas-Iowa State game is 7. BYU is at Oklahoma tonight. Oklahoma State is at Houston to get pulverized by the Cougars. Cougars are 21-point favorite in that game. Longhorns are a two-point favorite at home. Uh, NBA tonight, too. You've got the Dallas Mavericks in Brooklyn. You've got the uh, Rockets in Indianapolis to play the Pacers. And you've got the game of the night is Milwaukee and Phoenix from Phoenix tonight. That'll be fun. You see the Doc Rivers is going to coach the All-Star game for the East after just one three games on the bench. Put your money on the West. <laughs> Put your money on the West. And by the way, we'll get into this tomorrow, but I just found a story where the Las Vegas mayor on a podcast says that uh, she doesn't think the A's should be moving there for Major League Baseball. She said her idea would be, as they're trying to relocate to Vegas, the Oakland A's in Major League Baseball, quote, figure out a way to stay in Oakland. Not a good idea. That's the mayor of Vegas saying, why don't you guys figure out a way to stay in Oakland? We don't really want you. We don't want your bad baseball (laughs) We don't really want you. Oh, man. Uh, All right, man. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Safe travels to College Station and back tomorrow. Look for another Eyes on Texas podcast he and I will do coming out this week. Uh, Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Appreciate you having me. Ty, thank you as well. Thanks to everybody if you missed any part of the show, including that conversation with Ari Temkin. Craig Flowers was with us. It's all podcast at hornfm.com.